Hi there, everybody. This is Danny Anderson. Just want to get into the show real quick here, an interview that I really love doing with Charles Moore for Plow Books about his new book called Following the Call. But before I do that, I just want to uh, alert you that we had a slight audio issue with uh, with Charles's mic uh, for just a couple of minutes. Please bear with it and, and uh, suffer through, if you will. You'll miss a lot of good stuff if you don't. We do get that corrected uh, as the show goes on. So please just kind of uh, put up with it while it's going on and then enjoy the show. Thank you. You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Satan, your kingdom must come down. Satan, your kingdom must come down. I heard the voice of Jesus say, Hi there, everybody. This is Danny Anderson thanking you for listening to another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast. I've missed you while I've been away all summer, and uh, I'm hoping uh, to get back into the swing of things here with a, a really excellent uh, book that I want to talk to the um, editor of. Um, his name is Charles Moore, and uh, he's from the Bruderhof community, and this book comes to us from Plow Publishing. It's called Following the Call living the Sermon on the Mount together. And I'm really excited to talk to Charles about that. Uh, real quickly, before I get into that, uh, I just want to, um, you know, intrude on your patience just a bit and uh, let you know that uh, for the last few years of running this web, uh, this podcast, I've had a website associated with it. And I just kind of have grown past it and don't feel like doing it anymore, to be frank. And so um, I've replaced that work with a, uh, a page called it's an authory page, A-U-T-H-O-R-Y, uh, authory.com slash Danny Anderson. Um, and you'll, what it does is it collects all of the um, podcasts that I do. It collects any writing I may do from across the internet and puts it all in one place and kind of saves me a lot of work. And so um, I would love it if, uh, if you were listening to this and you would go find me on authory. If you go to my Twitter account at Danny P. Anderson, you can find it there um, and uh, subscribe. There's a little subscribe window that'll pop up. Um, you'll get an email once a week, just alerting you uh, any given week that I have um, put out something new into the world. And it's a great way to stay in touch with the show. And you can actually also uh, email me through that page as well as a longtime friend of the show, Chris Ebenezer um, showed me. I didn't realize that was even a possibility until I started getting emails from him through that. So um, so that's just the thing I would love for you to do if you have time or inclination. Um, for now, I want to get right into the show. Um, and Charles, thank you for so much for joining us. How are you doing today? Oh, very good, Danny. Thank you for inviting me. It's a real privilege, and I look forward to uh, spending this uh, hour with you. Uh, this is the pleasure's all mine. I love, uh, I have a nice little working relationship with Plow and very a couple times a year, um, they'll send me a, a guest, uh, based on a, an author of some book that they've put out. And I've always loved those conversations. I love the books that they send me, first of all, although I get them anyway, since I subscribe to Plow. Uh, it's one of my kind of favorite publications. And one of the things I love about it, I think comes across in this book is that the Plow audience is much like my audience. I think that what they do um, ap ap appeals to a, a range of Christians. If you're sort of a very conservative-minded 
you know, um, theologically conservatively, conservatively minded Christian, you will find a lot to love about this book. And if you have radical tendencies, uh, you will find a lot to love about this book as well. And, uh, and I think that, uh, I love what you've done with this book. And I, um, it's one of the things I want to talk about it, uh, with you, uh, about here as we go on. But you are a, a member of the Bruderhof community. Am I right? Yeah, that's right. Um, uh, actually, I didn't grow up in that community. I am originally from California, um, a doctor's family with eight children. And uh, I grew up in an upper middle class uh, background outside of San Francisco. Um, and uh, uh, I became a Christian um, pretty early on um, at 17. And in my journey as a, as a believer, um, I eventually uh, came to the conviction that the church uh, should be more like a community uh, than a religious institution. And that eventually led me and my wife to join the Bruderhof in the early 90s. And uh, yeah, and that's a, a long time to serve that community. I was telling Charles off air that I had the opportunity to visit a local Bruderhof community and it was just, they were so welcoming. Uh, they fed us and, uh, and uh, took us on a tour of, of their gardens and school. And it was just a, a really lovely, uh, lovely place. And both for the people who live there and it was lovely in the way that they open um, their facilities to people who don't. Right. And so I, I think the, the hospitality was really on display there. That's good to hear. Yeah, uh, that's very important to us. You know, uh, many people have a, a wrong view of community that it can become just uh, enclosed, uh, cloistered, and uh, we value um, having our doors open to the wider community around us. So um, I'm glad you had that chance. Yeah, me too. It was it was great, and I need to get back there at some point. Um, so w- once uh, COVID is over and we're all safe to exchange germs again, so. Um, but the uh, uh, let me. I want to get into the book. So the book is called "Following the Call: Living the Sermon on the Mount Together," and it's a a collection, a very wide ranging collection of very short meditations or um, little kind of uh, oh I don't I don't know how you say it, just little essays about. Um, looking at various aspects of the Sermon on the Mount from various angles. You'll have Tim Keller in here from the Presbyterian tradition, um, Dorothy Day in here from a, a leftist Catholic position, right? And so, um, and and of course, Everhard Arnold of the, of the the founder of the Bruderhof is uh, is well represented as well. But there's a, a whole range of really interesting writers in here that really look at this this text, this kind of core text of Christianity and take it seriously, right? And I think that's one thing that really spoke to me about this book is that I have not felt like Christians take the call, um, as you put it here, as seriously, as profoundly as it as we should, right? Um, to follow this call isn't just inspirational, it's actually kind of harrowing, right? And it, and it, it requires a lot of the person who states that they want to call, follow the call. And so I, I just kind of like to get your thoughts on what drew you to this material. Like, why is it that uh, you decided to put this together? Yeah, well, it actually starts uh, right from the beginning when I became a Christian. Um, the first book uh, that I read outside the Bible as a young Christian um, was a book um, given to me um, by Dietrich Bonhoeffer called Living Our Life Together. And uh, that enticed me. And then I read um, his uh, seminal work, The Cost of Discipleship, which really is his meditation on uh, the Sermon on the Mount and the implications of the Sermon on the Mount. 
And even though I didn't really understand a lot of it, 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 it really put a seed inside me um, to want to uh, explore more deeply um, uh, of what this core teaching of Jesus, uh, Matthew 5 through 7, um, meant for the Christian life. Um, and uh, so uh, I have studied the Sermon on the Mount and, and read a great deal of different authors and their reflections on it. Um, one of the things I found interesting, though, is the more I was captivated by it um, and talked with fellow Christians, um, the more resistance I got um, from those who, you know, claim to be followers of Christ. Um, I kept hearing uh, things like, well, um, you know, we can't take Jesus literally. Um, or, um, you know, this is, uh, if you really want to take this seriously, that th this is um, uh, really just for a few, you know, more radical-oriented Christians. And you can't really live this out fully in, in the world. Um, and that just made me uh, inside push back even more. Um, why would Matthew... Uh, feature this teaching in the gospel if it was not meant to be lived out by all believers. Um, and as I mentioned, eventually um, I, I was um, convinced that uh, to, to um, really take my faith seriously, I had to find fellow believers who would want to live out um, the teachings of Christ together. And, and that led me to the Bruderhof, which um, I, I didn't know at the time, um, from its very inception, was founded on the Sermon on the Mount in 1920 in, in Germany. This was the core teaching, and the question was, how can we live this out together? Um, and so this kind of um, eventually gave birth to um, the book that we have today, Following the Call, Living the Sermon on the Mount Together. Yeah, and I think you've hit it right on the head. There's so much, I mean, the words that we have of Jesus this makes up a large chunk of them. There's a there's a large percentage of of the total of words that we have from Jesus in the Bible, and this is one that a lot of people uh, sort of glide over. I think, unfortunately, on some level, right? And uh, and for all the other things that many of those same people would ask us to take literally in the Bible, um, I think that there's a resistance to do so here. Um, they're seriously, but not literally, perhaps, right? And um, and and yeah, I think that yeah. that's a, a a really challenging aspect of this book it's it's divided in such a way that it would make a really great Bible study I, I suspect that's sort of what you have in mind for this as a group study to read one of these on a weekly basis and uh, and, and go through uh, the challenge of this uh, of this call together yeah yeah and uh, the, the there's 52 chapters um, and it's similarly laid out to my previous book call um, which is entitled call to community the life Jesus wants for his people. People, And it was, it's designed ultimately for um, groups of uh, believers to read together um, and then uh, figure out, well, how do we do this together? Now, of course, um, we can uh, read the Sermon on the Mount personally, but Jesus addressed um, uh, his uh, teaching to a group of disciples. Um, they were not solitary figures. And he meant them to apply uh, his teaching um, together. And this is not an individual heroic ethic. It's actually the constitution of the kingdom. And uh, the kingdom of God is a collective notion. It's a communal, uh, political, um, and it's something to be lived out um, 
as a social reality. And, and so I've designed the books uh, to facilitate uh, not just group discussion, but how do we do this together? Yeah, that's um, uh, life together, as you say, right? And, and so I think that that's a, a, a great um, way to get into this discussion. Unless we think that this is a particularly idiosyncratic or even radical idea about approaching the sermon or the Sermon on the Mount. I think the book is arranged in such a way that you're drawing from a very wide array of Christian traditions. This is not sort of um, an outlier position that you're <laughs> you're bringing to this. This is pretty standard across Christianity through both time and and theology. And uh, and I, I guess it's a good chance to start talking about how the selection process. There's an eclectic array mm. array of Christian thinkers here. And, and how did you choose uh, pick and choose who goes in? Yeah. Well, first of all, I'm, I just read widely and have always appreciated the insights and perspectives of believers from different tribes, of, of the different uh, uh, Christian traditions. Um, but, you know, the, the Sermon on the Mount is the church's sermon. It's, it's everyone's sermon. And there have been um, uh, many from across the, the Christian spectrum throughout history that have struggled to um, figure out what does this mean? For our lives, um, and so this is not uh, some teaching that one church tradition has highlighted over the others. Um, and um, I also felt like it was important that we can become very, uh, maybe over familiar with the text of the Bible, and mm. particularly this uh, group of teachings. I mean, it, it contains the um, the Beatitudes, um, the Lord's Prayer. Um, these antitheses, you know, you've heard it said, um, but I say unto you, and uh, you can become over familiar with those words and um, not um, really be confronted by how arresting um, and truly radical they are. Um, and so having different perspectives, um, uh, different linguistic universes, um, different ways of approaching um, I'm hoping that what has become too familiar with us can be um, opened up and, and we can pay um, attention like we don't normally. So, uh, you know, I, as I've read different um, authors and so forth, they will say maybe the same thing, um, but they say it in a different way that might strike um, the chord that is in me and, and it may strike somebody else a little differently. And I think that's one of the wonderful things about this collection. Yeah, that's a really great point you make there about the over-familiarity of, of these words, right? They're, if you've gone to church your whole life, as I have, uh, it, they go in one ear and out the other after a while because they're so familiar. And there is a way in which the variety of voices and the perspectives they bring on this text um, kind of destabilizes your uh, preconceptions you have of it and makes you see it in a new way. And so I think it's very educational in that way. Right. And, and I want to emphasize that it wasn't, my goal wasn't to be eclectic, nor even ecumenical. Um, so the selection process, um, I, I had some criteria in mind. Um, first of all, this is not a commentary, although commentaries are important and they can give us insights and maybe help us to understand the text a bit. Um, th this approach that I've taken in the selections that are in the book 
um, are not meant to help us understand the Sermon on the Mount, nor is it a how-to kind of devotional book. Um, it, it's something different. Um, I, I, I'd like to say it's uh, kind of um, prophetic in its orientation. Because at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, um, you will not be blessed unless you do these things that I've said. Uh, and if you don't do them, you're, you're like a house on sand. And when the storms of life come, you, you're not going to be able to, to, to stand. Um, so I, I tried to select portions um, of different writings that would be prophetic and personal, existential, where uh, you have to make a decision. Um, maybe the decision is I need to change my beliefs to uh, I need to um, live differently. Um, they're not just meant to be uh, passive reflections where you feel spiritually enlightened, but you don't do anything about them. Uh, so this is kind of what I had in mind. Um, so you don't see a lot of strict commentary here from the great exegetes, um, but neither do you have kind of a soft kind of um, meditation approach. It's something between that. Yeah, many of them read almost like manifestos, and um, and and I think that that's a uh, a great uh, a great point. This is not going to be a a comfort read, although I do. This is what I've been reading before I go to bed. And I, so, um, this is uh, maybe I'm a weirdo though, so I, I also enjoy Kafka. So maybe that explains why. Um, so um, this also springs out of other work that you've done, though. Uh, you have a, another anthology called Con "Called to Community," and and I think you have a sense that the the call to action that's implied in the in these this grouping of text is some sort of an extension of that um, other work. Do you want to talk a little bit about it and its relationship to this? Sure. Yeah, it, it, um, Call to Community um, really came out of my um, the, the book from Life Together um, uh, by Bonhoeffer. And, um, and so I had collected a, a vast array of writings on that theme. And the authors that I uh, quote from in Call to Community, the bulk of them have actually lived in community. Um, well, when that book was completed, um, it seemed to strike a chord among a lot of people. And um, uh, and so I thought, well, okay, well, what should the community be based on? What What is true Christ-centered community about? And I couldn't help but think, well, what is the constitution of the kingdom, the constitution of the church? Um, well, it, the core of the Sermon on the Mount. And this is what should bring us together. We, we live in community because we want to enflesh, uh, incarnate um, the uh, Jesus' manifesto, um, as um, detailed in, in the Sermon on the Mount. So they're complementary. Um, and uh, so, you know, in a way, it's, it's, it's really a sequel to Call to Community. And you'll see a lot of the same writers, um, but you'll see a lot of new ones as well. Yeah. Um, and, well, let's talk then a little bit about um, the reader that you have in mind for this. Uh, there, there seems to be... Um, I don't know how to say it. Well, let me let me just ask you your opinion about your ideal reader, and then we might get I might probe that a little bit. Um, we might talk sure. about controversy. <laughs> so I, I think first of all, um, somebody who's going to pick this book up uh, takes their faith seriously and wants to take their faith more seriously. They're dissatisfied in some way, either in their own life or with the state of Christianity. Um, 
So um, it's going to be a more serious reader. That doesn't mean an intellectual or someone who has to be trained in theology. But they're really grappling, you know, how can we enflesh the kingdom of God in our midst uh, more concretely, visibly, dynamically in the world? I think um, also um, uh, the reader I had in mind um, would be one who actually um, feels compelled to do what Jesus actually wants us to do. Not just um, be able to explain Jesus' teachings um, or be content with a theology, but um, uh, there, there's, there's an urge to um, put into deed um, the life of Christ, his, his example, his teachings. Um, so that's kind of what I'm, you know, uh, was aiming at. Um, and that could be, you know, from any tradition. There's, there's sincerely uh, frustrated Christians today in almost every tradition. Um, and they're wanting more. They're feeling compelled that their Christianity is, is somehow irrelevant, um, compartmentalized. And they want a more total, complete, holistic expression of faith um, in their own life and with others. And so that's a great segue into, so if that, if you have an ideal sort of Christian reader, it sort of implies that you see a kind of problem in the way Christianity is practiced. And is there a, is there a way your book is meant to kind of step into that? Yeah, I'll, I'll put it rather starkly. Okay. So, um, when people look at our lives as believers and particularly the church, would they be reading the Sermon on the Mount? And I meant, and what I mean by that, not going to the Bible to read the Sermon on the Mount, but as they read our lives, would they be reading the Sermon on the Mount? Um, or putting it differently, if somebody didn't really know anything about Christianity, all right, um, and they hung out with uh, us, either on a personal level, but in particular in a corporate level, if, if they participated in some way in the fellowships that we belong to, um, and, and then um, opened their Bible and turned to Matthew 5 through 7, would they see any similarities? And I think, um, quite frankly, what most people think of as church today is a set of religious practices. Um, they're singing, there's preaching, there's um, maybe the Lord's Supper, um, there's prayer. Well, these are religious activities, and Jesus has very virtu- virtually little to say about religious activities. Yes, he talks about the Lord's Prayer, but it's interesting the kind of prayer um, that he teaches us. But he ta- he's talking about um, practices that actually bear witness to things like righteousness, mercy, justice, peace. Um, and so um, there, I think there is a problem with the church because I think they've, um, the church today has lost sight of what Jesus was about. And, and before the Sermon on the Mount is even, um, uh, we get to it in, in Matthew, Matthew talks about how Jesus went around, um, what, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom uh, and healing. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, um, after Matthew 7, um, uh, Matthew again emphasizes that Jesus went around preaching the kingdom of, uh, of God and healing. And the, uh, the kingdom of God is the bookend of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, so do people look at our lives and go, well, they actually belong to a different kingdom. 
they um, have given their allegiance to something different. Um, their lives uh, are lived on a different basis than the rest of society. Uh, and I think, um, uh, I, I think the church does not do a very good job of giving witness to the reality and the inbreaking of the rule and reign of God here and now and how transformative that is. Yeah, and I think that there's a, a way in which um, we, we see not only just practices that we do in church when we meet, but sort of being a Christian is also just sort of a set of of beliefs kind of things that I like things that I uphold uh, in my mind, but don't necessarily have any real connection to any action I might take in the world as well. Right. Exactly. In fact, it's interesting what Jesus doesn't say in the Sermon on the Mount. He doesn't, and, and not just the Sermon on the Mount, but in general, he doesn't say, do you understand? Good point. Um, I, I, or I'm teaching you so you, um, you know, that you confess and believe the right things. Uh, and again, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he talks about only those who do the will of God belong to the kingdom. So it's a matter of a praxis of living out, embodying what the rule and reign of God is like here and now, or what it can be like. Absolutely. Um, absolutely. I, I um, And I, I couldn't agree with you more, to be honest with you. And that's one of the reasons I think that the, this text was written to be a challenge, this sort of perpetual um, demonstration of how short we're falling, I guess, of, of the ideal and, and there, but we don't treat it as such. And I think that these little meditations that you've um, compiled for us, give us a chance to really reflect on the ways that we can improve, I suppose, as, as believers and as Christians. Yeah, that's really true. But But I'd like to maybe put a little different twist here. Um, because a lot of people read the Sermon on the Mount and they just feel judged. They feel miserable about themselves. They don't measure up. How can I be perfect as the Father is perfect and so forth? And you feel, um, you know, uh, condemned sometimes if you look at it through that lens. But I, I like to look at it a little differently. Um, again, Jesus spoke about good news. What is the good news? God is here. The King is here. He's in our midst. All things can become new. So embedded in every command in the Sermon on the Mount is actually an underlying promise. Uh, so when Jesus speaks to um, adultery, he talks about lust and those who lust have already committed adultery in their in their heart. Um, well, you can um, take that as actually a promise. You don't have to be condemned to a life of lust. There is a way to be free from the dictates and, the, domina and uh, the domination of a lustful life. Um, when he talks about um, anger, and you're angry at your brother, you've already killed him, okay? Um, but he's actually saying there is a way to be free from anger and liberated from anger. In fact, I think the Sermon on the Mount is a liberating text. It's a liberating text for those who want to um, be freed from the order that has fallen and in rebellion against God. It, it invites us into a new order. Um, and, and that order leads to life. In fact, Jesus says, narrow is the way that leads to life. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. So it's really up to us, which way do we want? Um, so I see it as a, a, a text of liberation, of promise, um, an invitation to God's grace that you can be transformed 
into a different kind of existence. That's a good point. Uh, thank you for that uh, that that correction. Really, I, I in fact I remember reading something along those lines in one of these meditations. <laughs> That's in one of these, and and now that you reminded me of that, it is more complicated than I even remembered. So that thank you for that. Um, I do want to get to a uh, ask you you know about some of your favorite uh, selections from here, but work. Going towards that, I would like to kind of look at the one you contributed. <laughs> um, it's about the merciful, and and that really spoke to me. I think for a few reasons. I, I happen to work at a Sisters of Mercy college, and uh, and so we have in our we kind of try to uh, have our education and our social you know activities spring out of what we call the four mercy values, and they're mercy, justice, hospitality, and service. And so um, this is very meaningful to me just because of the nature of my work, and it kind of is a way for me to kind of frame what I do, even in the classroom, in the, in the framework of a higher calling, right? And, and I feel like I'm really drawn when I see words like mercy. And you have a really great way of putting it here in, in this book. You call it, you say that um, the, root, the words root mercy in Hebrew refers to the womb. To have mercy is to have the feeling for another person that a mother has for her children. Mercy assumes a sense of solidarity with and responsibility for those in need. And I felt I just felt that was such a beautiful um, etymological approach to sort of what's required when we think about mercy. And you can sort of see the the selflessness built into um, so much of the Sermon on the Mount in that. And I, I really found a lot uh, to like in in the way you framed that. No, thank you. Yeah, uh, you know, um, uh, I worked with um, the homeless for quite a number of years. Um, before joining the Bruderhof, my wife and I were a part of a small community in the middle of uh, downtown Denver. And it was during the period where um, uh, Reagan had gutted the uh, mental health system. So there was just a lot of people on the street um, really wandering. And, um, you know, at first, you think of homelessness as a uh, problem to be solved. And what I found was actually, um, you know, mercy does not try to solve problems. Mercy sees the person first and foremost as created in the image of God. Mm. And every person can actually give. Um, and so it's not just me as the giver. Uh, it's not just that I bestow mercy, but that it's, it's a posture of the heart. Um, and uh, you actually connect with the humanity of the person in need. And then in the process, you realize how much in need you are. Mm. And so in that way, you're granted mercy. Mm. You're granted mercy in the sense that you um, don't have to view yourself as a problem solver or the one that has all the solutions, um, that you are more than your job or more than your uh, titles and so forth. So in a way you get blessed um, as you bestow mercy, the blessing is um, that you receive mercy inadvertently um, from the one that you might perceive as the neediest. Yeah, we the way we frame it in our materials here is it to it's to enter the chaos of another person's experience, right? And mm. when and when you do that. Mm. You're living in chaos yourself, which it does exactly yeah. as you say. It, it puts you in the in the position to receive, right? And, and I think that's a really yeah. wonderful way to think about it. Um, but for you, like, what are some of the things that I mean? You certainly had a favorite or two in here that uh, you included, and so what what are some things that stood out for you? You know, uh, I keep getting asked that question, and um, 
it's really difficult to answer that because sometimes what your favorite is is what speaks to you at the moment. Mm. And since you know I've reflected over the years, and I in in many cases I can remember where I was in the time of my life where what I read really helped me, instruct me, or challenged me. Um, and so um, I'd have to be kind of more autobiographical and give settings, but I do um, have a few um, selections that, that still just kind of ring out to me. Um, one is in the first chapter um, entitled Master Teacher, um, and uh, um, it's by E. Stanley Jones, who was a missionary at the end of the 1800s, um, early 1900s in, in India. He, he writes, there is a beyondness in the Sermon on the Mount that startles and appalls the legalistic mind. It sees no limit to duty. The first mile does not suffice. He will go too. The coat is not enough. He will give the cloak also. To love friends is not enough. He will love enemies as well. Come to that with the legalistic mind and it is impossible and absurd. Come to it with the mind of the lover, and nothing else is possible. And I think this is really important because it's very tempting to see now Jesus has a new set of rules. Uh, he has a, a, a new code that we have to live by, and this is the Christian's duty. But the lover does not think in terms of duty. When you are totally loyal to a person, um, and you have a love for that person, you go beyond duty. Um, in fact, you don't, you're not even motivated by duty. It's uh, a, a gratitude, um, a heart um, to show your allegiance. And, and, and we have to remember that the commands grow out of the person of Jesus. Jesus is the Sermon on the Mount in person. Um, he illustrates the Sermon on the Mount. And so uh, these commands should draw us to him. And it's a relationship out of um, following him and therefore out of a love. So I don't have to love my enemy. I get to. Um, I don't have to turn the other cheek. I am free to do that. Why? Because I want to win that enemy. Um and free that enemy from the anger and the hate and the, the jealousy or the envy or what, whatever it might be. Um, and so it goes beyond duty. It's not just commands. Yeah. And there so are, that's, that's uh, just a, a, a favorite selection of mine uh, that just kind of right, you know, begins the, uh, the book. And, and um, I think it, it should speak to a lot of people. I think there's a, there would be a tendency and I, I suffer from this tendency myself to, um, use the Sermon on the Mount as a measure for other people, right? As sort of a, a weapon uh, in political debates. And, and that's sort of missing the point <laughs> because I'm in doing so I'm failing to live up to it, as you say, right? Uh, exactly. and, and so, and that essay incidentally ends in a really beautiful way to put the man who spoke these words into the background. If you just forget about Jesus and look only at the sayings, they become as lofty as Himalayan peaks and, and is impossible, but put the warm touch of his reinvigorating fellowship into it and anything, everything, Thing becomes possible and, and i think that that's a, a really great uh yeah that's a great a great way to wrap that one up um is there another yeah. one did you like to point us to sure yeah um in uh, chapter 11 um 
there's reflections on um, the Beatitude, blessed are the peacemakers. And I love this piece or this little section from Thomas Merton. Um, Instead of loving what you think is peace, love other people and love God above all. And instead of hating um, the people you think are warmongers, hate the appetites and the disorder in your own soul, which are causes are the causes of war. If you love peace, then hate injustice, hate tyranny, hate greed, but hate these things in yourself first, not in another. Um, and, and I remember reading that and when I was... Um, really heart and soul and a lot of activism in the 80s. Uh, there was a nuclear freeze movement, um, all kinds of um, uh, activity. And it was very easy to think that you were for the cause of justice and peace if you were against um, uh, those things and you were against those who represented things differently. Um, and really the challenge is um, uh, we start with ourselves. Um, and it doesn't mean that we end with ourselves, but um, we have to look much more radically um, at what Jesus um, is teaching. And, and Jesus' teachings are radical in the sense that they get to the root of what ails us, that, that gives rise to all the social problems that we see around us. Um, around us. Um, and too much negative energy is spent about hating certain things. And in the process, we become the very thing that we hate. Um, I, I remember um, uh, at a, I was at a rally, a huge rally, uh, down in um, D.C. at the mall, and um, there were communists down there um, handing out the uh, the, the communist uh, newspaper that they they uh, were trying to distribute. And I was talking with this person, and uh, he was just filled with just kind of a agitation and so forth. And, um, and I said, well, you know, I, I, I belong to a community and I don't have private property. Um, so what about you? And he left off in a huff. Um, and I was really hoping that he would say, I'm, I'm living out an alternative um, against the capitalist system. But uh, he, he just left in a huff and he was too consumed with an ideal um, and wasn't able to live it out himself. Mm. And we're all indicted. We never fully live out um, uh, Jesus's teachings or the things that we say we believe in. But um, I, I just uh, think that this uh, piece from Merton just reminds me how important it is that I have to start with myself. Uh, absolutely. And and I think that that's a, a particularly relevant point um, in our current <laughs> world that we live in. Um, if anybody spends any time at all online, um, that is perhaps, uh, the lack of peacemaking is perhaps the, the essential sin of our time. And, and I feel like, yeah, there, there's a way in which, um, we get caught up in the ends rather than, um, the spirit uh, of the, of the machine that we're all sort of a part of. Right. And instead of, and, yeah. and we don't actually get at the heart of the problem that way. And so, um, Charles, thank you so much for this. Are there any, I want to let, let you have the last word. Is there anything else you'd like to say? Well, I just really hope that um, uh, this is more than just um, a book to um, uh, educate us. I, I, I really do um, hope that those who read it 
um, come away um, with a deeper desire to um, center their lives around Christ. Um, Christ is more than a teaching. Um, and yet um, this gives hands and feet. I, I often say that the Sermon on the Mount is not the gospel, but it is the hands and feet mm. of the gospel. And um, I, I, I hope that people can come away more determined uh, to be the hands and feet of the gospel. Um, so I, I really appreciate the, this chance to um, you know, have this interchange with you. And, um, I, and I really wish you well in, in, in the work that you do. Well, thank you so much. And this helps, honestly. Um, I, really, I mean, reading this and having it, you know, in my mind, um, sprinkled in my mind, you know, consistently here the last few weeks, has, I would suggest has made me um, do a better job um, working with students as the semester has begun. I, I, I do feel um, a, a sense of, I don't know, I, I don't know if a sense of generosity towards them um, more so than in the past. I don't know if that's true or not, but I feel um, like I'm in a good place with my students and the way I'm interacting with them. And, and this idea of like the service that's at the heart um, of, uh, of the Sermon on the Mount that I've been thinking about so much in reading this has certainly helped. I would say it couldn't have hurt. Yeah. <laughs> it's, and I believe it has helped yeah. me actually. So, um, and uh, Charles, thank you so much for putting this book together and thank you for your contribution to it. Um, and I look forward to future work that you do. Um, thank you again to Plow for uh, sending me the book and, and for uh, setting this up with you. I really, I always enjoy these conversations. And uh, this is one of my sort of favorite interviews of the year is what the, the latest latest plow person they sent me so that's great yeah well thank you it's great to um, have uh, comrades along the way and uh, fellow sojourners and uh, I look, uh, we look forward to you know future opportunities and um, so uh, yeah uh, all the best and um, until it, until another time you may see me again <laughs> <laughs> I would love that you're welcome back anytime and uh, and yeah, yeah this has been a, a great uh, a great pleasure for me thank you so much um, the book is called following the call and it's called uh, the subtitle is living the Sermon on the Mount together and it's edited by Charles E Moore and uh, you can find it anywhere you get books uh, it's produced through plow books and uh, it's definitely worth your time both as an individual and as a group uh, to go through with other people. I think that you'll find a lot to uh, a lot to inspire and to challenge you with in this book. So thank you so much, Charles, for joining us. And thank you for listening to another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast. Yeah.